Have you been searching for a community that gets it? Join me, your host, Monique, as we get real about the emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual effects infertility has on its victims. Let's connect and heal together. I am one in eight, too. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Infertility and Me podcast. I am your host, Monique Farouk, and I thank you so much for letting me be a part of your day. And I also want to say thank you for your continued support and listenership each week as we delve deeply into the world of infertility with expert advice and also real stories from real people. Today's episode features Dr. Mark P. Trollis of Fertility Care in Winter Park, Florida. Dr. Charles is certified in both OBGYN care and reproductive endocrinology. Dr. Charles has recently published his first book in January of 2020, which is called The Fertility Doctor's Guide to Overcoming Infertility. The book opens up with an exploration of all the causes of infertility, covering both couples who have never been pregnant and those who have had reoccurring loss in pregnancies. Unique among infertility guides, this volume gives roughly equal weight to male and female causes, which is important because about 40% of infertility cases are due to men's issues. This book also covers not just medical interventions, but also includes lifestyle changes you alone can make involving sleep, diet, exercise, and other forms of self-care. Dr. Trollis offers expert advice and analysis and guides patients through the many decisions that have to be made along the way, such as whether or not to continue treatment, whether to change practitioners or treatment plans, and whether it is a good idea to continue to spend money on procedures that are not covered by insurance. Dr. Trollis understands that these are emotionally weighty decisions that involve the focus of your family, and he provides ample grounds for optimism and hope and, and empowerment as you take on this journey. So we will get right into the episode with Dr. Charles, and hopefully we can get some questions answered. There are a few questions that were given to me for Dr. Charles through Instagram, and I will do that at the end of the episode once we have covered the basics of his work and his inspiration behind his work. And so here's Dr. Charles. Want to start out and get some insight as to your inspiration for going into the obstetrics and productive endocrinology field of medicine. Well, the two easiest decisions of my life was choosing my wife and choosing the specialist. Beautiful. Uh, be, because, I, I, you know, my wife and I, you know, we met and within within months we were looking for a ring uh, to to get engaged and. Uh, my first exposure to reproductive endocrinology and infertility was when I was a third-year medical student, and they asked, hey, who wants to do a rotation? And I said, uh, I'll, I, you know, I knew nothing about infertility, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So for a week, I was immersed in a field that would change my life. It was, Monique, it was truly the aha mm -hmm. moment. Uh, I could not believe the devastation, uh, the the personal trauma, the the uh, the technology that was available, uh, the close relationship that the physician had with the patients. Uh, it really encompassed everything that I loved. It was it was a lot of 
thinking through processes hormonally. Mm -hmm. uh, there was psychology, there was surgery, there was medicine, there was emergency medicine. I mean, everything was all, all, all there. And I just, I love the relationship I have with my patients. And unfortunately, I was also a patient, but that has brought me to understand them even further and has brought us even closer. Wow, that's amazing, and I love that. Um, so, what you just said that you had, you were uh, yourself a patient, and in what way uh, were you a patient? Was it through infertility or fertility uh, struggles? My wife and I decided when I was in third year of residency, we said, "All right, let's uh, stop using contraception, and we're gonna we're gonna try to have a baby." And we just were unable to, Monique, uh, after a year of of trying and and going through all the different steps that my patients through in terms of timing ovulation and when to, when's the best time for relations, uh, <laughs> went to see a specialist. And that started our 10-year journey, challenge and struggle the field that I am involved in for my life. So for 10 years, my wife and I endured the heartache, the disappointment, the cautious optimism, and then the the negative results and uh, intermittent complications. She had surgery. I had surgery. She had mm -hmm. emergency surgery. It, it was just a roller coaster, and and I felt I was suffocating because Monique, all my patients would be crying during the day, and mm -hmm. then I go home. I go home, and my wife is crying at night, right? Wow. Uh, and yeah. and we really we were lost. You know, you're in. You know, one of my patients eloquently described that you're out in an ocean and you're just on a life raft and you just don't know where to go. You're just literally lost and you're just surviving. Uh, so we, we prayed and we cried and, and eventually after multiple unsuccessful cycles, we decided to adopt our family and we are just blessed to have five beautiful children and we've just put everything into them and, and we're just so blessed uh, so many times over. Wow, 10 years. Wow, Dr. Charles. Wow. I, I say this to many people, Monique, and I think that everybody probably should experience at least a brief moment of worry of, hey, am I going to be able to have a child? Uh, because the appreciation that you have, when you see that you've struggled, and then you, you are having a pregnancy, and then you have a baby. And, and I, I know parents love their children. But when you have suffered through the thought and the, the challenges and disappointments of, of not being able to have a child and then are blessed, there's, there's just a different feeling. And uh, it, the appreciation is, it goes beyond words. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I had my son through. IVF, so um, he's, oh, three. Okay. he's three now. Wow. Yeah, he's three now. So I definitely, I definitely, thank you so much. And I definitely understand the new outlook towards mothering and fathering after you've um, suffered so much. That's an incredible story um, and, and journey that you guys have been on. And I'm, and I'm just so grateful that, you, and I'm sure your kids are, that, you, that they found you and that you found them. Wow. Well, we always tell them they were chosen. You know, it, it's such a, an open understanding. We just love them without being able to describe the miracle of what we have. And this journey has made us stronger, my, my, my relationship with my wife, my 
uh, understanding of the human condition and how how to overcome the challenges. Absolutely, absolutely. I know that it's made you more of an incredible doctor just from having that experience and having your own patients within the reproductive endocrinology field. The uniqueness of me having lived their life, you know, I don't talk the talk, right? I, I, I've literally walked the walk. I, I have walked in their shoes. I have lived their lives. I know how they have felt. Uh, I have I have sat where they sat. And they, uh, I think, get it uh, as I'm talking but because Sometimes patients say to me, you know, how do you know how I feel? You describe it as if I'm talking. And, I, and that's when I share with them that I, I have endured what they have. So the, I think the empathy and the compassion, I've always loved this field, but uh, this has brought me even closer to my patients. I've, I just, I've always put myself in their position of how they would be receiving what I'm saying. And I really have always empowered them to make the decisions. You know, fertility is a physical, emotional, and financial investment, as I described in my book. Uh, and, I, and I really educate my patients as best I can so that they are proactive in their decision-making and they are their own advocates. And that's something I feel very, very strong about because, unfortunately, uh, with fertility not being uh, nationally mandated, uh, it is a lot of times self-pay for patients, and there is the potential for exploitation that procedures may be performed prematurely, or there may be add-on procedures that may not be the best medical evidence to support their use. And and so I tried to put a lot of this in the book as much as I could to guide patients and to do some caveat emptor, you know, let the buyer beware about what they're being advised, and is it really going to influence the outcome of our cycle. So I try to encourage my patients to uh, research and, and the book is really that. It's a guide toward what they're going through, not just to talk about options, but are procedures and testing really relevant? Is it gonna make a difference in the outcome of the cycle? And so when did your research begin towards the book or what was your light bulb or aha moment in creating that book or, or, or the idea of the book coming about? When did that happen for you? Well, it's it's really been a slow process, Monique, over time. I, I write a lot of articles and blogs, uh, not just for medical journals and, and, and research uh, uh, and, and review articles, but for what we call throwaway journals for physicians locally that, that are summaries of, of different procedures or different diagnoses of diseases. So I wrote a lot of them that goes out to that they go out to OBGYN. And over the years, they started to accumulate. So engaged a book editor and I said, you know, why don't you put these together and, and we could self-publish a book on this. And as he was doing that, he said that, you know, this is really some good material and I think it could be better than just a self-publication. So he started to look at it and we worked on developing it more. And finally, I was blessed with the opportunity to get an agent to allow me to get a top-level book publisher. And there's different levels of publications, right. uh, lower, mm -hmm. middle, and top. So mm -hmm. the top levels only will work with an agent. And, and I was blessed enough to be selected by an agent to promote my book. And so Harvard Common Press, Quarto Publishers, had accepted my book and very, very humbled 
by the fact that they wanted to, to put my book out there. So grew. It, it took time. I mean, I didn't. I, I you know I wasn't sitting around saying, "Hey, I should write a book." Uh, it started to develop over time because of how much I had written already. And then and then there was a lot of fine tuning and a lot of editing and rewrites that that I would do based on uh, the publisher's recommendations. It's it's a lot of work. There's no doubt about that. But I felt so passionate about having something that patients can go to as a real resource. And as the book title, I mean, the Philly Doctor's Guide to Infertility, it's, it's really a guide for anybody who's interested in building a family or is having trouble building a family or want to know the different options for them to, to grow their family in all different methods. There's a, uh, for single women, there's heterosexual couples, there's LGBTQ population. Everything is in there to empower people uh, to build their family. So can we talk a little bit about the lifestyle changes that you discuss in the book without giving too much away, of course, mm -hmm. for those who may not have listened before? Sure. I, I came up with what I call a SWAT analysis. Uh, there, in business, we know that SWOT, we call it a SWOT analysis, which is a uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for businesses when they're looking mm -hmm. at their business plan. But I called mine a SWAT analysis. And this has to do with really the threats to fertility. And so the S is for sexually transmitted infections. And uh, when you're having sexual relations and if you're not using condoms uh, and, or, and or not sure of the, of the uh, if the partner is uh, free of disease, unfortunately, you can get Infections and chlamydia and gonorrhea are very well known to cause damage to the fallopian tube, so much so that they can have irrevocable damage that they may need to be removed because of something called uh, hydrosapins, which is a blocked swollen tube. So that can really damage the fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. And sometimes patients don't even know they had an infection. Right. So, exactly. that, so sexually transmitted infections, of course, uh, can, can, can play a significant role certainly more more serious ones like the like the HIV of course major health implications the other is is the w is about weight okay body mass index the extremes i mean not just overweight but but underweight can have impacts on ovulation function and chances for conception uh, pregnancy complications are higher uh, preterm labor for extremes of body weight when women are very thin sometimes you know, the body mass index less than 18.5, which is the lower limit. The upper limit of normal is 24.9. When women are below or are struggling with something called the female athlete triad, where their energy expenditure from exercise and athletic competitions, they're exerting more energy and burning more calories than they're able to take in, that can actually stop someone from ovulating. And it really risks bone loss and stopping periods. So patients can get very sick and they could even die. Five to fifteen percent of patients can die from that problem. So they don't always have to be underweight, but they are in a situation where they're not taking enough. They're in energy deficit. Okay, so body weight in the normal range of eight, of the body mass index BMI eighteen point five to twenty four point nine is is the goal. Higher levels of that will reduce fertility. The most common um, problem that we see with patients who are overweight and obese, uh, which is a BMI above thirty is something called polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS. Uh, PCOS is the most common hormone problem in women. It affects uh, 6 to 
of, of women. And it can cause ovulation dysfunction, and they can get elevations of male hormone. There's also medical complications like abdominal circumference increases and prediabetes and diabetes and hypertension and abnormal cholesterol and triglycerides. So that's a condition that definitely worsens because of, of weight. So even though you can have it, 50% will have it when they're thin, uh, you, you want to be thin just because it would be easier and reducing pregnancy complications like uh, diabetes and pregnancy and, and it, it unfortunately also increases the risk of miscarriage. So that's the W. Now the other issue of uh, SWAT analysis is also about uh, ovarian aging, okay? Mm -hmm. Age is a big factor with fertility, uh, a woman's age. But, but you know, Monique, men are not excused. You know, many years ago, we mm -hmm. thought that men had unlimited fertility, right. but, yeah. now, but now we know that in men above 40 to 45, they have higher rates of infertility and miscarriage, preterm labor in their, in their partner, but also high, four to five times higher risk of, of, of autism, schizophrenia, and they could also see birth defects. So men waiting too long can impact fertility. Now we know that women are born with all the AIDS they're ever going to have, and their fertility is going to start declining after age 30. So they're born with about 1 to 2 million eggs. And uh, when they go through puberty, they're down to 200 to 400,000. Hundreds get used every month, and only one makes it to ovulation. The rest die off. So after right. 30, mm -hmm. you're going to start having a decline in fertility. So at age 30, you roughly have about a 20% chance of conception per month. At age 35, maybe in the 10 to 15% range. At age 40, you're in the 5% range. So Age is a big deal. Importantly, though, ovarian age testing, you know, people ask me about the AMH level, the anti-malarian mm -hmm. hormone level. Well, fortunately, that doesn't tell you your ability to conceive naturally. It only tells you your ability to conceive. I'm sorry, that's only, it doesn't tell you your ability to conceive naturally. It tells you your ability to conceive uh, probably through in vitro fertilization because if you have a very, very low AMH level, that means your numbers of eggs are low, and you're not going to get a lot of eggs with IVF, and that can reduce success rate, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so ovarian age is a big deal. The last one is the T, and that's tobacco. Uh, tobacco, bad news for a man and woman. Uh, the woman, it accelerates ovarian aging. Women go into menopause sooner, increases the risk of miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy actually causes genetic alterations of the egg as well as the sperm. And fertilization is affected. Now, marijuana and vaping are not excused from this problem as well. So all of those uh, issues uh, play a role in fertility. And of course, you know, the other concerns about excessive alcohol use and certainly recreational drug use, all of those can, can, can have an impact on fertility and certainly, God forbid, during pregnancy, which you want to avoid. And so for the uh, the low AMH and, and the ovarian um, aging of the eggs, is there a correlation between the, the age of the woman, her uh, ovarian reserve, and the quality of embryos or eggs that she may have during any given cycle? Well, sure. That's a terrific question. And the younger the woman, the better quality of her eggs even if the ovarian age testing is not good. So the best predictor of outcome for pregnancy is a woman's age, okay? And the younger the woman, the better. So there's two parts when you look at ovarian age, Monique. There's two parts. There's 
quality and quantity. The quality of age is based on her birthday. The younger, the better. Quantity is, uh, is determined by two methods. The AMH level that we just talked about, okay, the lower is the no, lower number of eggs because it's produced in the cells surrounding the eggs. So the lower AMH, lower numbers of eggs. And then also ultrasound that's called the antral follicle count, or AFC, that you look at the ovary and count the numbers of small little baby cysts on the ovary that represent microscopic eggs. Now, they're always diminishing, and, and newer ones that, are, that were really, really tiny start showing up on ultrasound because the woman is endowed with all the eggs. But the lower the number on ultrasound and the lower the AMH, the lower the quantity. When you're younger, quality is good, so quantity being low is not as much of a detriment as when you're older because now you have quality issues and quantity issues as well. Makes perfect sense. That, thank you so much for explaining that for someone who may not have understood it in the end as deeply as you've just explained it. That's that's incredible information. I think it's going to be very valuable for uh, listeners. Thank, thank you. And, yeah, thank you so much for that. I've never heard it explained like that before from a, from a uh, physician. And I guess because it wasn't an issue with, with my own cycles and going through IVF, that's why my doctor didn't delve so deeply in it. So thank you for that. That's going to be really helpful, I think. And, and because I think that with IVF, sometimes people believe that it's going to be the magic cure for their infertility, um, especially when they're a little older, maybe a little over 35, maybe closer to 40, but especially with a lot of celebrities having babies late, later on in life now, and it's being publicized, and there's some awareness going on with them waiting, you know, women and men waiting longer to have children. Two comments on that, and, and very, very good points, Monique. One of them is that I think IVF, unfortunately, is pushed a little bit too fast, at least in this country, when it may not be necessary. You know, over time, the success rates may be similar if you just allow the patient to go through a few more months trying naturally. Or now, IUI cycles, of course, are not very, very high success rates. In the best of circumstances, you're dealing with about 8% per month. But I, I really try to reassure patients that, you know, you look at, let's look at the guidelines. If you're less than 35, you really want to give yourself a year because after about a year of trying, 99, about 90% of patients will have conceived. So even if it takes a little longer than six months, seven months, eight months, it's still possible. Now, of course, the longer it takes during that year, the lower the success rate. But it doesn't mean that you rush and, oh, my God, I have to do IVF. So I, I worry about physicians that may push that a little bit too soon. And certainly it's, it's very costly. So that's one thing. And, and certainly as a woman gets older, you, you do want to get more proactive. When you're above 35, you know, 35 to 39, you probably after six months an evaluation is reasonable, and then above 39, really after three months because of the age-related factors. Uh, there's an argument to be made, though, in women above 38 or, or so, that, that going straight to IVF may be most cost-effective, particularly if they've never had a child uh, because time is, is getting precious. And mm -hmm. if they do in vitro fertilization and then freeze their embryos, then they're, they're going to potentially preserve their fertility for even when they're older. So that that's an option to consider. Okay, and I think that brings up another thought that I had too as well. For a woman who has had her, her eggs frozen prior to the age of 35, and then she comes into your office and she's maybe 38, closer to 40, and she has these eggs that's been stored and everything, and she's ready to conceive or try to conceive. What does the process look like for that? Because 
with age, I know that the body works differently, uh, especially a woman's with carrying a child too, and the risk of carrying a child closer to 40 years old. I know um, I've had a couple of guests who are single and have done so, and, and I think that they probably may not have all the information as to, you know, I, I just feel like sometimes women are freezing their eggs and not looking at the other aspect of when it comes time to have that baby, if I am 40 plus years old, the other complications that come along with that. And I think we just need to be informed about, you know, the whole process. Well, let me let me just do my second point of the last uh, topic that we were just talking about, because you were mentioning celebrities. And I, I want to caution patients of, of using celebrities as uh, the model uh, for when they are trying to conceive and, the, and they come to me and they're in their mid-40s and later 40s and they say, well, this celebrity did this and this celebrity did this. Well, I always share with you that just because celebrities may be attractive, it doesn't mean their eggs are any better, okay? Uh, so as they get older, they are going to experience ovarian aging as well. And it is believed that a lot of them are doing egg donation, uh, but not disclosing. So there is a potential misleading of their fans if they don't disclose that they're doing egg donation. And when you're dealing with being above 42, you have a significant challenge through in vitro fertilization. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be involved in uh, one of the oldest women in the world to have a baby using her eggs with IVF. And, and our patient was 46 years old, okay? And that was published several years ago. But this is something that is not meant to give patients hope. The reason why we published it was to show the rarity of the situation. So I want to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Now, switch, switching over to egg freezing, well, that's really Pandora's box, right? Because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, and unfortunately, a lot of companies are pushing egg freezing, and that's where the biggest risk of exploitation is, is occurring. Uh, it is expensive, probably around, around $10,000, and there is no guarantee that, one, a woman is going to use her eggs that are frozen, and number two, if she does use them, she's going to have a baby. So it is a quasi-psychological insurance plan, but it is in no way a guarantee, and it is costly. So the young women, you know, we're talking about the late 20s and early 30s, well, you know, if they're going to freeze their eggs, it's really been shown that they are much less likely to need it because if they need a partner in a few years, uh, they still have a reasonably good chance of success. It's been, it's been studied that probably a woman at around age 37, somewhere around there, it is most cost-effective to freeze their eggs because as they get older, it's going to be even more difficult. I'm not saying, you know, wait to 37 to freeze your eggs. But I am saying that before you do it, please do your homework. Please speak to a clinic about their success with egg freezing. Look at statistics and really look at your life and see whether it's really going to be uh, something that, that you should do. You might meet a partner uh, that is uh, in the future and that is against using frozen eggs. You don't know what circumstances are going to come about. But unfortunately, and here's the exploitation risk, is unfortunately there are clinics and companies that are pushing for egg freezing when it is, it is really, they're not disclosing probably all the information women need. They may do AMH levels and see that it's lower, 
and a woman is afraid and, and oh my gosh, am I going to go into menopause sooner? And, and once again, as we mentioned earlier about AMH levels in aging, they looked at women from age 30 to 44 and they did not, each age did not have any difference in pregnancy rates, mm. whether, whether the AMH level was normal or low. And this was for natural cycles. So let's not get too fooled about AMH levels and, and get uh, prematurely anxious. They need education. And that's what this book is about. It's about empowering women to avoiding the pitfalls and the, uh, unfortunately, the caveats of being introduced to different procedures and technology that may be premature or unnecessary. Absolutely. I think this book is definitely going to be a, a game changer and, and expand some minds and some awarenesses to, you know, all of the available options and, 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 and treatment options and natural actions. Because I, I, I believe your book is both for the person that may be trying naturally first and also the person that is currently in a cycle or getting ready to go into a IVF cycle. So this is going to be really valuable information. And for all those who have already read your book, I'm pretty sure that they are are just loving it and, and highlighting and bookmarking <laughs> every detail that you've given in the book. And I did want to ask one question. Well, two questions. One is from a, um, in, well, two are from Instagram. This particular young woman, she is a regular exerciser. She does more so of running and walking type of thing. And she's having an issue with sleep right now in the midst of her cycle going into uh, treatment, but she's not there to the point where they've done uh, egg retrieval yet. And she's having some issues sleeping and she's wondering if maybe it has something to do with the medication and the hormones of her cycle. Well, I have not seen, and it's a very good question, but I have not seen fertility medications inducing insomnia. Certainly stress can play a role. I'm glad to hear that she's exercising. We don't want to do too much. Mild to moderate exercise is important. The, the American Cardiology Association, five days a week cardio, uh, about 30 minutes is, is really the minimum necessary. Uh, excessive amounts uh, could, could have a negative impact on ovulation function, but there is sedative effects and, and, and there's relaxation techniques from exercise. Other ways of relaxation techniques are yoga, meditation, mindfulness. Those are very important as you're going through, uh, particularly an IVF cycle, uh, talking to your partner, talking to a psychologist. You know, we have had a week with health psychologist with our practice from day one. I feel very, very strongly about the mind-body. And so speaking to somebody who has the experience, a healthcare, mental health professional who has the experience uh, in talking with infertility is vital as opposed to a general counselor. And, and certainly uh, another option is a study, uh, an IVF buddy. If you know somebody who's gone through it, uh, they, they could just relieve some anxiety about the unknown. And so we do that with our patients as well. So uh, definitely techniques of doing that. Uh, you know, um, talking to her fertility doctor or, or her primary care physician. There are some over-the-counter methods that, that could be helpful if, uh, if the sleep is becoming worrisome or, or, or disruptive in her life. Those are, those are ways that she could potentially help herself. Excellent. Thank you for that, Dr. Trellis. And the other question from another Instagram follower was that she has had two miscarriages in the last year um, through treatment. And, but she said that she's not crazy. She knows that her first pregnancy that was very healthy, she didn't have any issues or complications getting pregnant and or having a viable pregnancy. It was 20 years prior to her treatments that she's in now. She's wondering if there's a correlation with the miscarriages one after the other within a year's time and her treatment. And if there's, I guess, 
I guess she's more so seeking answers as to whether it's mainly her age and egg quality or if it's because her body is just not getting the rest in between the miscarriages. Right, I understand. Do you know her age, Monique? I do not know her exact age. Okay. I, don't, I, I know not to ask that question to other women. Everybody's not as open as me, but um, she probably had her first baby in her 20s and maybe her earlier to mid-20s. Okay, and this is 20 years ago, so she's probably in her early 40s. Yeah. So let's look, at, let's look at the numbers. When you're less than age 30, your chance of miscarriage is going to be around 10% or so, okay? At 30, you're dealing with around 33%, all right? And it's only going to get worse. Uh, so as a woman gets older, quality is also contributed by chromosomal abnormalities of the egg that contribute to an abnormal embryo, okay? So your risk of having a baby, say, with Down syndrome at age 35 is somewhere around, say, 1 in 365, and at age 40 is around 1 in 100. And then it sort of doubles every two years. Chromosomal abnormalities are the most common reason for miscarriage, more than two-thirds of the time, okay? So when you're in your early 40s and you're experiencing miscarriage, it is most commonly due to the woman's age. But as we mentioned earlier, we can't eliminate the male factor. So if her husband is, or partner is above 40 to 45, that they have higher rates of miscarriage as well. Unfortunately, age is a terribly frustrating problem that impacts many, many of our couples. Now, the other thing is, you know, are you, are you going to have a higher rate of miscarriage if you get pregnant too soon? A study has shown that there is no reason to wait to, uh, up to three months or longer, that could actually have a negative impact on, on uh, fertility. Mm. So, so with your next normal menstrual cycle, okay, once you have a normal menstrual cycle interval, you can try to get pregnant right away after a miscarriage. And that will not uh, hurt your chances of success and could only potentially help. Thank you so much, Dr. Charles, for answering those two questions from the followers. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very, 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 very busy man, so I won't take up any more of your time. And I appreciate all the wealth of knowledge, expertise, and wisdom that you've shared with us today, as well as your own journey through infertility. And I know that it's going to be so valuable to so many people. And I'm going to make sure that I have your website and your Instagram handle in the show notes so that everyone can connect with you, especially if they live in the state of Florida, and they can maybe come and talk to you and get some insight on some things as well as um, check out your work on your website. And, 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 and don't forget about Dr. Charles's new book, A Doctor's Guide to Overcoming Infertility. And I think you guys are going to really like that book. It's got a wealth of knowledge and information in it. And so you want to get your pens and your highlighters and your bookmarkers ready because it's, it's got a lot of information in it, guys. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Charles, so much for your time and coming on to the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure, Monique. I, I, it's an honor to be able to educate patients and your listeners. Uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm so humbled by the fact that people are interested in my book and, and it's really a privilege to be able to help people through a problem like this. So I applaud you for your advocacy, always available uh, to be interviewed and to, and to help others going through this. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at Dr. Mark Trollis. Uh, I wish all of your listeners success, tolerance and, and patience and understanding and, and mental health as they're, as they're going through this challenging disease. I pray that they're able to overcome this uh, in the near future.